stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. I think we need to sort out what's happening with drunk driving in Alberta and how we're dealing with drunk driving because there is going to be a different approach in 2018, but is it the right approach? And what does this change mean? The word decriminalization is kind of a loaded word. Like, I think if we were to talk about decriminalization of marijuana, it would be essentially saying, you know what, it's not that big a deal, and we need to to treat it differently. If we're talking about the decriminalization of impaired driving, we're not saying that it's not a big deal, and I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Uh, But it's more so an approach of taking it out of the courts, and dealing with impaired drivers in other ways, which, again, then maybe on the surface, okay, that seems straightforward enough. we got a lot of delays uh, in our courts right now, and maybe we could ease some of that burden. That would help. But what are the, the risks and the downsides to what are essentially then shortcuts, I think, to dealing with accused drunk drivers? There's been a lot of debate around this approach in recent years, right, because Alberta's done what B.C. has done with this sort of roadside penalty, the administrative approach. Now, part of that, of course, was struck down in court recently. The uh, suspension program we had in Alberta, where an accused would have their license suspended until their case was resolved, so basically an indefinite suspension, was found to be unconstitutional. So some of those changes that the uh, NDP were ordered to bring in passed just a couple of months ago. So it changes the suspension protocol, but it's still the same kind of approach going forward, that that's the preference. We'd rather deal with drunk drivers that way. But how do you fight it in court? How do you try to demonstrate your innocence if the government's taking it out of the court system? Well, joining us to talk a bit about what this uh, all means or might mean uh, given the experience next door in B.C., pleased to welcome to the program Paul Doroshenko. He's a uh, lawyer based in Vancouver, uh, specializing in this area. Paul, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Yeah, it's nice to speak to you again. Okay, what, what do you make of the term decriminalization in this context, first of all? Well, you know, it's not taking it out of the criminal code, right? It's still right. Uh, something that's in the criminal code, but we've seen this sort of change in the law in Canada that... Uh, happened with the with the bc decision when it went to the supreme court of canada basically the supreme court of canada says that if you've got something that's a persistent problem uh and it could fall under the jurisdiction of the federal government and the provincial government then you know and you haven't been able to deal with it with the means of the criminal law uh maybe you can step in and do something uh with the uh, you know provincially with some other scheme and, and basically that's what the supreme court of canada said so it stays on the books as criminal law the interesting thing is that decision is the thing that facilitated all these marijuana dispensaries uh, because locally our government in Vancouver started regulating about marijuana dispensaries and, and basically circumvented the federal criminal law using that same precedent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as it's conceived in Alberta and, and as we have it now in B.C., the police are going to be the ones who make the decision as to whether or not they're going to prosecute you criminally or deal with you administratively. And it really sets up a potential for arbitrary policing. Um, You know, it could be the guys who are wearing their hats backwards today are going to be charged with a criminal offense, and the, uh, you know, the people who are driving uh, Range Rovers today are only going to get the administrative offense. I mean, you you never know what their criteria is going to be. 
uh, in BC, I've heard police officers joke about they're going to pull over East Indian men. You know, that's what they did last night. Um, and in traffic court, they're, you know, you overhear them talking. And, and, really? and that sort of danger uh, is the type of thing we see when we see this sort of arbitrary setup. Uh, and looking at Bill 29, the bill that's, uh, that's just been passed, I mean, it's, uh, I've only got the first reading of it because the, the third reading version isn't published, but uh, it, it kind of looks like it, it really is just potentially arbitrary. Well, why, why, why are governments pursuing this? I mean, is it, I guess it's a cheaper way of, of dealing with the problem? Is that well, it? Well, you in Alberta have a huge backlog of cases in your yeah. provincial court, and you've got uh, major delays that are, are in, in provincial court, and it's not just impaired driving cases, it's all sorts of other cases end up, you know, uh, potentially being thrown out for delay. And that you have to back up a little bit uh, and go back a few years. Uh, what caused all these delays? We didn't have all these delays a decade ago, right? But in 2008, um, the Conservatives made a change to drunk driving law in the country. It was a fairly small change. It was Stephen Harper basically pushed by Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which was a, an easy door to push, uh, changed it. So uh, basically, if you were to prove that the uh, readings were wrong, you know, the breath readings were wrong, you had to show that the, that the breathalyzer you blew into was defective. Uh, there's lots of reasons the reading can be wrong aside from that, but that was, you know, the... the basically the only way you could do it. It went to the Supreme Court of Canada. It was found unconstitutional, but that was the one little part that was left. So in order to prove that the breathalyzer is defective, how do I do that as a defense lawyer? Well, I make a request for every bloody document repairing, you know, showing the repairs and maintenance of that breathalyzer. And so that started causing the delays. And the interesting thing for us, you know, it wasn't something we ever really considered, right? We didn't look that much into the functioning of the breathalyzer. We worried about the law, but we started looking at the functioning of breathalyzers, and we started finding them malfunctioning. Uh, you know, a, a long history of this. Uh, you know, the one that was being used in B.C. was pulled out of service. The one that was used in Alberta, the Intoxilizer 5000, was pulled out of service. Yeah. Um, and they were replaced by another one that's uh, the Intox ECIR2, which is, uh, uh, frankly, even scarier in my mind. Uh, but really, it, that change in the law... They didn't think about the consequences. They thought they could just hammer people. Uh, and that change in the law uh, led to all of these court delays right across the country. So the court delays fall at the feet uh, of the government of the time. It came into effect July 1st, 2008. Uh, and we've had all of these court delays have been occasioned as a result of that. Now, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, even if you were to change the law back, we now know about all the problems with breathalyzers. So you're not going to get rid of these delays. We're going to be requesting this disclosure and getting this disclosure for forever. Um, so now what are they going to do? You've got a big backlog of cases. Well, in Alberta, uh, they're looking at what we did in B.C. In B.C. in 2008, we were dealing with the financial crisis. You know, we sell uh, all of the wood to build houses in the U.S. That's where, our, you know, our, right. one of our largest products. And, and hard uh, softwood sales had dropped to next to nothing. So then uh, Finance Minister Colin Hansen was, uh, you know, brought the superintendent of motor vehicles before the caucus and told them, this is something we're looking at doing to save some money and try and generate some money to turn drunk drivers from a, an expense of having to run a trial in these cases and the court delays, and we're going to try and make them make us some money. And when it was first presented to caucus, you know, there was a bunch of people who were experienced politicians who knew that there were ruminations about this for years, and nobody was willing to do it because they all thought it was ridiculous. Uh, it was presented to caucus, and then they got a sort of a uh, ambivalent response. And then it was, the, you know, they brought him back a few weeks later and said, "We're doing this. You guys all have to vote for it." 
And I've talked to a bunch of the members of our, our legislative assembly who have told me this is how it played out. So that's how we ended up with this law in BC. Uh, it was money. Uh, and, uh, you know, the question is, has it been effective? Right. And the answer is, uh, in the first couple of years they did it, it was between eleven and 13,000 immediate roadside prohibitions were issued, and you could say that's a lot of people, and that should have some effect of deterring people, but each year since, it's been the same. It's been basically the same number of people who have been caught with this scheme. And, um, you know, people in B.C. are not happy about it. Uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, we fought it. The first version of the scheme was found unconstitutional. The second version of the scheme, the judge said, well, there's some big problems with it, but we think that can be litigated later on and fixed. And as we were doing that and fixing those things, we started winning more and more and more cases, and we got to the point where the, it was starting to embarrass the government. You know, <laughs> Kyla Lee in my office won 96 of them in one month. 96. Wow. Okay. Um, so it was embarrassing the government, and so they changed the law again, basically back to something very similar to the first version which was found unconstitutional, and so we filed a constitutional challenge to that, and we argued that in December, like just a few weeks back, and we're waiting for a decision on that. So our version of the scheme has been before the courts almost every day since this law was enacted. And when we conduct the hearings for it, we do it before a tribunal. It's not a court. You know, if you get one of these 90-day driving prohibitions, we, we dispute it before a tribunal. We get the tribunal's decision it's almost impossible for the tribunal because they don't get, you know, they, it's all on paper, right? So how are you going to determine credibility? Who are you going to believe, the police officer on paper or the person on paper? So they make these decisions that a lot of the time to us don't make any sense whatsoever. So we file appeals of those to the Superior Court level, which is in Alberta, the Court of Queen's Bench. And now we've got probably a 1,000, we figure, right now. So we're blocking up the Superior Court is now getting backlogged as a result of it. So what used to take a day, in 2007, it would take maybe a day to run an impaired driving case in provincial court in Alberta, BC, same thing. Like I've done them in Alberta for a long time. Um, after 2008, it got to the point where it was a three-day trial in provincial court. Now we're into one day basically having a hearing in BC Supreme Court, which is an appeal of the decision that was rendered by the tribunal in the government office. So it's, a, it, it, it's, it's hardly a scheme that you look at uh, from Alberta with envy. Right. <laughs> you know? So it, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, but um, the problem is, what are you going to do? You know, the genie's out of the bottle. We know that breathalyzers have malfunctions. We know that police don't, uh, you know, for a long time. You remember a couple of years ago, they were withdrawing all of the uh, over 08 cases. Mm -hmm. You know why that was? It was because they weren't maintaining their instruments properly. So basically the, the, the company that was supposed to maintain them wasn't signing any of the documents to show that they'd done it. So who, how could you know who did it and whether or not it was done? So for a long time, those things were being thrown out on that basis. And, 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 and it's fascinating. You know, I, I've, I've got a whole new view of this, an economic view. You've got a body of law, you know, for decades we had the same impaired driving law in this country, and it was fairly effective at actually slowly reducing uh, the number of impaired driving cases. And police officers were getting fairly good at it. The courts were good. The judges knew the law really well. Lawyers knew the law. And we could sort things out quickly. You know, if it was a, if the person was going to be found guilty, you'd know, because the law was fairly clear. Uh, and then the, when, the, when Harper's conservatives changed that law, uh, they threw it into chaos. And we have all of this body of law that we've spent millions of dollars, both, you know, individuals across the country hiring lawyers, judges, prosecutors, 
police officers testifying, millions of dollars sorting out all of these issues. So it was clear. So the law was clear. And then you throw it into chaos, and what happens? You know, we ended up back in the Supreme Court of Canada when they changed that law. That cost millions of dollars. Uh, you know, <laughs> that took years. There was cases that were thrown out across the country. Um, and uh, you know, now we've got, federally, they're going to do that again uh, because we've got a new legislation that's just recently been, it's passed. Uh, it, uh, the, uh, and we're waiting for royal assent on it, but it's, uh, it's already been passed in the House of Commons Bill C-46. These things just throw the law into chaos and end up costing taxpayers millions of dollars when we've already invested all of this into, you know, into establishing the law. It's like coming along and saying, you know what, I don't really like the color of this kitchen, but in order to change the color, we're going to have to tear the house down. Right. So we're going to throw the whole house out, and you know, we know we've worked for this for years to get it to this point. You know, we've 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 all uh, done our good job. The courts have done their job. Uh, you know, making clarity in the law that police officers understand how the law works. They don't make too many mistakes because they understand it, and, and then they throw the thing into chaos, and then it ends up being litigated for years and years and years, going to the Supreme Court of Canada. And I'm telling you, like, this this one change that was made in 2008, that thing's still being litigated like crazy um, and will be for years to come. And the changes that are in C-46 that the, the federal government has just passed, it was this is a version of the legislation that was introduced under the Conservatives. It's back again. It was introduced by private members before. Uh, basically, it's written by Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Um, and uh, that thing is going to end up costing us hundreds of millions of dollars in litigation over the next few decades. Uh, so the provincial government's looking at it, and they're trying to find a solution. So you can't really knock the provincial government for trying to find a, an answer. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, they have a problem. The problem is drinking driving. The problem is it's incredibly expensive to prosecute uh, a drinking driving case. Uh, and you're trying to deter people from drinking and driving. Um, and, you know, the main re- way we do it is we say you're going to get a criminal record. You're going to get stopped. You're going to get a criminal record. Um, how are you going to do it? So they come up with an administrative scheme. And the problem is the administrative scheme they always come up with never protects the innocent people. And there's a lot of them. Yeah. You know, there's there's uh, impaired driving cases are, are are there's more people charged with impaired driving and acquitted of impaired driving than any other individual offense in this country, and there's not as many people acquitted. People who are charged of theft are usually convicted of theft. Impaired driving, a lot of people are innocent, and that's because you know a police officer looks at you and they think that you're impaired, but you know you can also have problems with the way you walk. You can have, you can just be different. Uh, you know, there's lots of there's lots of reasons that people ultimately end up being being acquitted for it, but it's uh, it's one of those offenses that, um, that, that there's sort of a moral panic going all the time, and it's an understandable, not not correct, but understandable moral panic because you know people die and people are seriously injured, and it's a and it's a it's a fundamentally immoral thing to do. You know, people drink and drive for selfish reasons. Right. Um, so it's uh, you know there, there, there's these contesting. Um, sort of things going on, but we, we, we've we've handed it off now largely to a lobby group um, to sort of write our legislation in this country, and and we're seeing the downside is that we're all paying for it because <laughs> it, it's it's just made these these prosecutions so different. Now, having said that, you know, back to the genie, letting the genie out of the bottle that we discovered that breathalyzers aren't the reliable things that we've been led to believe. 
uh, not as reliable and that there's potential for many other problems, it, it does make you quite, um, I guess, concerned about the number of people who have probably been wrongly convicted in this country. You know, I, I got an email uh, in a Freedom of Information request uh, after I had found out this one problem with this breathalyzer that we use in BC, and the email said, uh, you know, how many, it was a, it was a, a member of the RCMP toxicology lab emailing at one of his colleagues saying how many innocent people have been convicted as a result of this machine. Should I shut up now? Um, and, you know, we know that we know they're not, they, we've, we've always been told every time the RCMP introduce a uh, new breathalyzer, they always say, this is the best thing. It's never going to fail. Everybody's guilty who blows into this thing. So many different ways that it can be wrong. Yeah. Well, some reason for concern going forward. Paul, we got to leave it there for now, but I'm sure we'll have a cause to talk again. But appreciate the insight, as always. Thanks for joining yeah. us here. Nice to speak with you. Likewise. Uh, that is a criminal defense attorney uh, based in Vancouver, Paul Dwarshenko, uh focusing on impaired driving laws. So, as he says, you can sort of understand why the Alberta government's looking for money-saving ways of dealing with this problem. But in doing so, you just invite all kinds of new problems. So when you hear talk of how the Alberta government's decriminalizing impaired driving in 2018, understand that's what this all means. So there's reasons to be concerned about the cost of this approach, the impact it has on the rights of an accused, and a lot of other problems that go with it. And that's the thing, though. Impaired driving is a legitimate problem that we do need to deal with. This doesn't seem to be the way to do it. 974-8255, back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.